This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 166 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Lilia Graue, a medical doctor, marriage and family therapist, eating disorder specialist, and certified body trust provider based in Mexico City. We talked about diet culture as a form of trauma, why working towards societal change is just as important as individual recovery, the importance of community in body acceptance and overcoming shame, how not to let the concept of mindfulness and mindful eating get twisted in the service of diet culture, and so much more. It's a really great episode. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. The person originally used the word quote-unquote obesity a lot, which is a stigmatizing term that I only use in quotation marks because of how it's rooted in fat phobia. So I'm just going to replace that with the O word when I read the question. It's from a listener named Sophie who writes, I recently discovered health at every size and am impressed by the way it reflects a lot of my own experience recovering from an eating disorder. I'm still fleshing out my understanding of the Hayes worldview. One question that I keep coming back to is about the rising weight of the O word. I haven't read many studies on this, but I would say there's a generally accepted view in mainstream culture that the rate of O word is rising, particularly in Western countries. Does health at every size dig into why this might be happening? Or is it a case of since there is nothing wrong with being O-word, and since we have no way to lose weight once gained, that the causes of fat don't matter? Is Hayes interested in prevention of O-word at a young age? I understand this question might be rooted in weight stigma, and I'm trying to move away from that, but this question keeps popping up in my head. So thanks, Sophie, for that question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, it's awesome that you have an awareness that your question might be rooted in weight stigma. And honestly, it's so normal to be rooted in weight stigma and fat phobia when you first start learning about health at every size, because we all grow up in diet culture, which is totally rooted in weight stigma and fat phobia. And it takes a while to unlearn that stigma. So have compassion for yourself as you go through that process and know that you undoubtedly will uncover many layers of weight stigma as you delve into haze. So my answer to this question is going to have many layers. And first of all, yes, the haze view is that since there's nothing wrong with being in a larger body or being fat, if you identify as fat, and since we don't have a way to create permanent intentional weight loss, it's really beside the point to worry about the causes of people's body size. And by the way, you'll notice that I'm saying in a larger body and the causes of people's body size, or if you identify as fat, rather than using the O word, because the O word is stigmatizing, like I said before. And the reality is that there's a natural diversity of body sizes in the world. And some people are just going to be in larger bodies. That's how it is. You know, it's not a pathological thing, the way that the notion of quote unquote obesity makes it out to be, right? It's pathologizing a body 
size. It's making a body size seem like a disease when in fact it's just a natural fact of life. It's a neutral thing, just like height or shoe size or eye color or whatever. And the reality is not everyone is meant to be on the left-hand side of the BMI chart, you know, the body mass index chart. And using BMI as a measure of health is fatally flawed anyway. It's not useful. It's actually not a measure of health. And for more on the evidence behind that, you can check out the 2016 scientific paper, Misclassification of Cardiometabolic Health When Using Body Mass Index Categories in NHANES 2005 to 2012. If you just Google misclassification of cardiometabolic health, it should pop right up. And trigger warning for that and all the other scientific studies I'll be mentioning here since they all include the O word and mention weights and numbers and things like that. So if you want to avoid that stuff, maybe don't look at the studies themselves. But if you are someone who has, you know, an interest in science and want to look at what backs up these claims, you can check that out. So we don't need to worry about why some people are in larger bodies or fat for folks who identify as fat and use that term in the spirit of the fat acceptance movement. And in fact, worrying about those reasons and calling it a quote unquote obesity epidemic actually increases weight stigma, which has been shown to have a bigger impact on people's health than weight itself and than what people eat. So for some of the science behind that, you can check out the paper, Perceived Weight Discrimination and 10-Year Risk of Allostatic Load Among U.S. Adults. Allostatic is A-L-L-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. And the paper, Weight Science, Evaluating the Evidence for a Paradigm Shift. So it's really interesting to see that weight stigma actually has a bigger impact on people's health than what they eat because the new guise of diet culture that I'm always talking about here recently is what I call the wellness diet which is, you know, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. It's about wellness. It's about health. We just want you to be healthy. It doesn't matter if you're skinny. Healthy is the new skinny. You know, that sort of language, that sort of framing of things. That's what I call the wellness diet. It's diet culture's new shape-shifted form in, for the 21st century. And wellness culture makes it out to be, well, as long as you're eating healthy, as long as you're eating clean or eating, you know, whatever the sort of fad diet du jour is per the wellness diet, then you're okay, right? But actually, no, because if you experience weight stigma, if you experience discrimination and oppression because of the size of your body, because you're in a larger body, which people in larger bodies generally experience in our society, then no amount of quote-unquote clean eating is actually going to change that. Your experience of weight stigma has a greater effect on your health and creates greater health risks than what you eat. So I think that's really fascinating and important to keep in mind in this day and age of diet culture. So we really don't need to worry about why people are in larger bodies in the first place. And Health at Every Size also is not interested in preventing children from being in larger bodies. We're not pathologizing larger bodies for children, just like we're not pathologizing them for adults. Because interventions aimed at preventing certain body sizes have actually been shown to stigmatize the people in those size bodies, contributing to discrimination against those people, which as we have just discussed, is worse for people's health than the supposed health interventions that are supposed to make them healthier, but that actually come with a side of weight stigma. So if you want to know more about that, I highly recommend the book, What's Wrong with Fat by the historian Abigail Segui. So all of that being said, though, you know, the fact that we don't need to worry about why people are the size that they are and that body size is a part of, you know, natural human diversity and that it's a social justice issue, really, to stop weight stigma and to, to help people live without prejudice, without oppression and discrimination in all size bodies and especially the very largest bodies. All of that being said, 
if there has been any increase in the average body size in Western culture over the years, which is not a bad thing or an epidemic, but just a neutral thing, and it's possible that that has happened, it also has paralleled increases in average height in Western culture, which is just a neutral thing too. And more interestingly, the increase in average body size in Western culture has paralleled increases in weight stigma and dieting. And we know from the research on dieting that intentional weight loss, aka dieting, aka lifestyle changes or plans or protocols or anything else designed to shrink your body, not only don't produce sustainable weight loss in the long run, but they actually lead to long-term weight gain in up to two-thirds of people. And you can check out the paper Medicare's Search for Effective Obesity Treatments. Diets are not the answer for more on that. So again, not that weight gain is a bad thing by any means, and it's certainly not the supposed epidemic that it's made out to be, but if we do see an upward trend in people's weights in recent decades, we also have to consider that it may be because Western culture is diet culture, and diet culture pushes people to shrink their bodies, which actually ends up having the opposite effect in a significant percentage of people the vast majority of the time. And whenever we export Western culture to other countries, we're also exporting diet culture. You know, we're also exporting our ideals of thinness and our ideas of needing to shrink larger bodies and our concept of the quote unquote obesity epidemic. We're also exporting all of that information, all of that culture. So we need to consider the fact that the so-called Western diet may not be to blame for negative health outcomes in those westernized places at all, but rather that it's Western diet culture that's causing problems. And again, we don't need to worry about stopping weight gain because it's not actually the health crisis that people claim it is. But we do need to stop the epidemic of diet culture because that's bad for people's health independent of body size, both because it creates weight stigma, which we've already discussed, carries bigger risks for people's health than their size or what they eat, and also because diet culture creates weight cycling, which is that yo-yo of weight loss and regain that the vast majority of dieters experience that you've probably experienced as well if you're listening to this podcast. And that puts tremendous stress on the body and particularly on the heart. And so you can check out the paper I mentioned earlier called Weight Science Evaluating the Evidence for a Paradigm Shift for a discussion of why weight cycling could explain all of the excess heart risk seen in people and larger bodies. So in other words, it's not their weight itself causing heart problems. It's the fact that folks in larger bodies are more likely to have tried to shrink themselves because of the weight stigma they face in this culture. And the yo-yo dieting that results along with the stigma actually puts their hearts at greater risk. So I hope that helps answer your question and give you some food for thought as you start your Health at Every Size journey. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want me to answer all of your questions to help you master intuitive eating and health at every size, you can come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has 13 modules of content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, plus an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where I've answered hundreds of participant questions already. And when you join the course, you can ask me your questions and have me answer them in the following month's course Q&A. My participants really love the Q&As and they've told me that they really help to make things clear and that they love having that personal touch as a part of the course. Another thing that they really love is our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants because it's full of just amazing people who are really there for each other on this anti-diet and intuitive eating journey and supporting each other in navigating our toxic diet culture every day. And I'm also in that group answering questions and providing guidance along with my wonderful staff. So you really get a huge amount of community support 
support and individual attention in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. We're brought to you today by Casper. You all know I'm a huge fan of Casper because sleep is such an important part of self-care, and Casper makes the most comfortable mattresses around. And with three mattress models, including the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, their mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your body's natural shape. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in an unbelievably small box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Right now, you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash foodpsych and using the code foodpsych at checkout. That's casper.com slash F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, and use the offer code foodpsych for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. We're also brought to you today by Tomboy X, whom I'm so psyched to have as a sponsor because they make underwear for all bodies and all gender identities that makes you feel confident and comfortable. It's time to wear underwear that's made to fit you and how you see yourself. Tomboy X. They have everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks and boy shorts to soft bras and racerback bras. The bras are seriously the most comfortable ones I've ever worn, and the trunks and boxer briefs actually double nicely as protection from thigh chafing in hot weather, so that's a good little tip there. They come in everyday basic colors and fun seasonal prints, like wildflowers and cats and adorable little kiwi birds, like those little puffy birds are so cute. And regardless of where you fall on the size or gender spectrum, Tomboy X offers amazing underwear that any body can feel comfortable in. Go to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych and check out their special bundles and pack pricing. Foodpsych listeners also get an extra 15% off with the code foodpsych. Again, just use the code foodpsych, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, for an extra 15% off. Ditch whatever you're wearing for a pair of Tomboy X underwear. Go to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych. And then finally, I just wanted to let you know about a really cool resource created by today's guest, Lilia Graua, in collaboration with me. So you may remember me talking about a live workshop that I do occasionally called Master Your Anti-Diet Message for fellow health professionals and activists who want to learn to market their work effectively and without any unintentional diet culture triggers. Well, Lilia took the workshop in English, and she loved it so much that she offered to translate it into Spanish for our Spanish-speaking colleagues. So if you happen to be someone who's most comfortable learning in Spanish, or if you happen to know any Spanish-speaking anti-diet activists and providers out there, now you or they can take the workshop anytime thanks to Lilia. Just go to christyharrison.com Spanish to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com Spanish. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Lilia Graua. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So like most people's, I guess, it was complex. Even as a baby, my mom tells me that it was complicated in that I was very specific about the amount of breast milk I wanted. And when she tried to push for me to feel a little more because of things the pediatrician said or this notion that I had to take a certain amount of milk, I would totally not take it. And we think that I might have had some sensitivity or reflux or something as a baby, 
And then my mom was really amazing in the sense that she really did a lot of studying about how to feed a baby without creating a conflicted relationship with food. Wow. And so she did breastfeeding for the first six months and then started introducing different foods in a way that was just incorporating me to the family's way of eating. And so it wasn't set amounts or specific types of food, just her diet and very natural foods and just offering me whatever I wanted. And there was never any force feeding. There was never any conditioning in terms of, oh, you have to finish this in order to eat that or anything. That part I don't remember, of course. My mom has told me about it. And then from the time I can remember, I was a super picky eater. And I think now looking back, it had to do with what could be diagnosed as sensory processing difficulties, but more, at least in the way I live it and the way I identify, I think it's more that it wasn't, I wasn't neurotypical. And so I was very sensitive to specific tastes and textures in foods. And so I have, I had very clear cut preferences, which my mom completely respected. And so I would say a diversity of foods, but I was very specific in that nothing could have very strong tastes. And there are even foods in the Mexican diet that I did not eat, like beans. I hated beans till the time I was about 10 or 12. Wow. So a texture thing, probably? A texture and a taste thing, too. I did not like spicy foods. My sister, for instance, would eat chili up. Like, she really loved it. And my dad, too, and my mom, too. But I couldn't. It was just the stimulus in the mouth, I suppose, was too much for me. So I I don't remember a, a conflicted or anything relationship with food back then. I know that I was a very picky eater. And eating at certain houses was complicated. But at home, it was just very natural. I ate many of the things that my family ate, and some I didn't like, but that was respected. And my dad had this one rule that I had to try everything at least once, which I so hated. But I would, and then if I didn't like it, that was it. And the other thing that I find really interesting is that my mom had this rule where if somebody else served my plate, I could eat or not eat whatever I wanted. If I served my own plate, I needed to finish it. Interesting. And so now as I become more acutely aware of the implications of certain rules and ways of relating to food, I find it interesting that for a long time I had difficulty leaving food on the plate if I had served myself. It was like, "Mm, no, I, I put it here, then I need to eat it. And that kind of got in the way of me honoring my satiety signals as an adult. Right. I mean, that's so interesting because we really don't, we can't predict how much we're going to want, right? Yeah. Sometimes you, it's trial and error. And especially if it's a new kind of food, you don't yeah. necessarily know what's going to be enough to satiate you. So Exactly. Or what's going to be too much because you right. didn't like it or because you felt full sooner than you'd anticipated. Right. Yeah. And so for those years, really, I think it was a a pretty respectful relationship with food. And the thing that complicated it, though, was that I grew up in a household with significant mental health challenges in both of my parents. And so mealtimes were not peaceful. 
mealtimes were very anxiety-provoking and violence could erupt at any minute. And so I learned to really just be very alert all the time. And so I couldn't relax around just sitting around the table and sharing a meal. And I think it had to do with the fact that for a long time I ate very quickly because I just wanted that period of sitting down at the table altogether to be over as soon as it could be and just leave very quickly. And it also had to do with the fact that for a long time, the only place I felt safe and relaxed eating was restaurants because when we ate out, everybody was at their best behavior because we were in public. Yeah, there was no danger of anything bad happening because there were eyes on you. Yeah, but even to this day, meals with a lot of family are very anxiety-provoking to me. And I didn't really know the reason for that until I really explored it in depth through my mindful eating practice and through therapy not that long ago. But I just knew that all of my life, meal mealtime was very anxiety-provoking around people. If I was eating alone, everything was perfect. But if I was eating with people, specifically family, it was like being very anxious and conflicted around that. And I think the, the other meaningful part around that is that I started training as a swimmer at a pretty young age. And through that time, I became used to just eating large amounts of very energy-dense foods. My mom remembers me having a lot of Twinkies and cupcakes and that sort of thing in my parka. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> like but the parka knows. you wear after swimming. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the parka you wear throughout competitions or trainings. Mm -hmm. And she remembers me just having the pockets of my parka stuffed with candy bars and chocolates and I don't remember that, but that became a part of the way I ate because I need a lot of energy. And this was around the time where I started hitting puberty and my trainers and some teammates started commenting on the fact that my hips were too big for a swimmer, which was really difficult because it, it started this fight with the way my body looked and the size of my body. And there were a bunch of conflicting messages. So my teammates and my trainer were making very overt comments about the size of my hips. My teammates more in the sense of just teenage teasing, which for me felt more like bullying. And my trainer is just saying, yeah, you have the wrong body because this is not the body of a breaststroke swimmer, which I was. And this was around, yeah, 11, 12, 13 years old. And then I had these voices from the mothers of my teammates complimenting my body all the time, which felt so intrusive because it was like my body and they were just talking over me with these comments around, yeah, like you have such a beautiful figure. And, and it just felt shameful, actually. It, it didn't feel like a compliment. It didn't feel like something pleasant. It was like, why are you commenting about my body kind of thing? And I think around that time, I developed an, an emotional way of eating in that I wanted to feed something. And there were all these foods that I needed to eat because of energy and how much energy I was spending. 
in the pool or at the gym or stuff. And it was around that time, I think, the early teenage years that I developed my first, well, the first, I remember, the first episode that was really of a very severe depression and with suicidal ideation that lasted for a long time. And the way that I experienced depression was with a much higher appetite and a much lower energy and need for more sleep. And I needed to cut back my level of activity. And I was also not happy training. I was on the swim team because my mom wanted me to be, but I hated the competition part of it. And so I quit the swim team. And because of the way I was feeling depressed and I was eating more, and I was so used to eating all these energy dense foods, and then my weight shifted significantly and it went higher and people started commenting on it because it was very evident that my body had changed in a short period of time. And also it was right around the time when our bodies change in puberty. But I started feeling so much shame around the shape of my body and the way that I was eating. And that started a period of several years of just chronic dieting. and. Because I was still exercising significantly, my body was tram-athletic. It was conventionally attractive. And so I was very privileged in that sense. And at the same time, my inner experience was of so much shame around my body and my way of eating that had to do with the depression. And then this period of chronic dieting was in parallel with a lifelong history of a mood disorder. And so whenever my mood improved, I was able to really become more attuned to my hunger and satiety signals and to be more active physically and really enjoy doing more things. And then when I was depressed, I would be very low energy and eating much more and binging because of the depression. And this chronic dieting thing had the guise of quote-unquote, healthy eating. It was very much about reading about nutritional science and the best way to nourish my body as though some external authority had all the answers of how all bodies are supposed to eat. And I think I was very lucky in that I didn't develop a full-blown eating disorder. It was more these binging cycles associated with my depressive moods or, yeah, episodes. And this quote-unquote healthier way of eating that was, of course, restrictive, but nothing that would endanger my health. It wouldn't send me to the hospital. It wouldn't have me malnourished. It did definitely endanger my mental health, mental health and, yeah. and the way it related to food. And then what happened next? So I, I started medical school, which was definitely not helpful for my relationship with food. I bet. At all. Oh. I think back, and we were also eating disordered. I I remember back in, well, there was a lot of fat phobia, of course. Yeah. I'm it was rampant. Imagine. And now we had a justification because how, how could people dare to not care about their health and eat in ways that we were taught supported best health? And I remember my my friends in medical school just making fun of people in larger bodies and really having a very disordered relationship with food 
people were going through periods of restricting and binging. And that became even more evident when we started doing the clinical clerkships. We were spending most of our days at the hospital. And there was, at one point, we were in third year of medical school, and everybody was taking pills. Oh, my God. To manage, quote, unquote, their weight. And it was, I think it's just nonsensical to me that we were trying to become the people who are supposed to help others cultivate a better health, more well-being. And yeah, half of my class was dieting and taking diet pills at one point. And one of my best friends had a boyfriend who was studying chemistry. And so he had the pills analyzed. And they were full of so many things that people should not be ever taking for any reason. And and so, yeah, so people were just endangering their health under the guise of let's be healthy. Healthy, yeah. Which is, I feel like that's such a, such striking evidence of how a supposed picture of health can actually undermine people's health. And doctors are under such pressure to be the supposed picture of health, right? I think the same is true of dietitians and, yes. you know, anybody who's supposed to be, who's held up as like the paragon of health. Yeah. And it actually pushes people to be extremely disordered. Yes. Yes, of course, because you're, you're just doing this performative health thing where you're supposed to look a certain way that people associate, like you say, with the picture of health but it has nothing to do with healthy behaviors or a healthy relationship with food or bodies. Or mental health. It's all. privileging the physical above the mental. Like, yeah, 100%. absolutely. And above the social too. Mm-hmm. Because social interaction is greatly impaired when you're engaging in dieting behaviors. You're not really participating in cultural traditions or family traditions or just being able to enjoy the company around food. You're busier just giving your life away to the life thief, yes. like you call it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And when you are present too, you're like ruminating about it. You're thinking about how many calories does this have or how can I you know, work this off or whatever disordered thoughts are sort of interfering with the, the actual present moment. Yeah. And then also because hours become grueling, when we were doing our internship, people were taking drugs just to focus their attention and stay awake through 36-hour shifts. And what I was doing was just eating my way through the night calls because I couldn't stay awake. And the body is so wise. It turns to whatever gives it energy. Yeah. And that was a that was sort of a saving grace for you, I imagine. Like, instead of turning to drugs, you were turning to food, which, yeah. you know, is such a <laughs> less intrusive or less... A le- yeah, harmful thing definitely body, less right? intrusive. And also because this cycle had already been set in that whenever I had my depressive episodes, there was greater hunger and I was just eating those foods. I found that comforting. And so my cycle was really all about comforting myself with food. That was also very pleasurable to my mouth at this time in my life where almost nothing felt pleasurable. Because in the, the nature of depression is that you don't enjoy things. You feel unmotivated. You have no energy. And so there's this little thing that's giving you pleasure. Of course you're going to turn to that. Right. And now I can look back at it with compassion. But back then I was so ashamed. 
of the fact that I was eating in secret or that I was binging because that's what I needed just to either stay awake or to comfort myself. Because that year of my internship, I my mood was all over the place. Well, yeah, I was cycling. If you're, if you're like staying up for 36 hours straight working and and in charge of people's well-being during that time too, what pressure? Like, yeah. We were working 80 to 100 hour weeks. Oh my God. With 24 to 36 hour shifts, which is ridiculous. Completely. And you are supposed to be in a frame of mind. <laughs> oh God, no. that contributes to good decision making right good judgment Oof. everything but that is happening and of course we didn't have time to eat I remember that you had to lie you had to say oh I'm going to the lab to get this patient's results and then you ran into the cafeteria went from soup to dessert in five minutes and then ran back and say, oh, sorry, I took so long. The lab technician took a while to give me the <laughs> results back. <laughs> That's unbelievable. As though people were machines. As though yeah. you didn't need self-care. Right. And then we oh. were eating from street vendors through the... So there, there was a gate at the hospital. And there were street vendors on the other side of the gate. And they would pass us food through the gate. And we would pay through the gate. Oh, my God. Because that was the only way we could get food outside of the regular cafeteria hours, which sometimes we wouldn't be able to make because we were either in surgery or whatever. And and so when I think back about that, it seems almost surreal. But then, of course, I finished my internship. And as much as my mood was cycling, my weight was cycling, too. And I finished my internship. And I had no idea how to sit down and enjoy a meal anymore. It was just literally scarfing my meal down and not really tasting it, enjoying it, with no clue anymore about how much food I needed to sustain my health and my body and my well-being. It was just this thing. And then the other thing was because throughout med school, we are indoctrinated in this weight-centric paradigm and in this nutritionist way of thinking, not in a good sense, but just like... Like healthist Yeah, like healthist. Yeah. And it was just about... I got to the point where I, I saw a plate and all I saw was numbers and proportions and meal sizes. It wasn't about what do I need right now and what would make me feel good right now or what would best sustain my energy needs right now. It was just, oh... Is there this macronutrient on the plate? Is there this other macronutrient on my plate? What is the proportion of the portions that I have here? And what do I need to add? And what do I need to, to subtract? And just all that counting that really gets in the way of true connection. And pleasure. Yeah, and pleasure. And so there was none of that after that. And to the outside world, someone could look at me and say, oh, she is so healthily. Right. It was anything but that. And then I did my training in eating disorders straight after med school in parallel with my master's in marriage and family therapy. And pretty soon I started working with people with eating disorders. And that was such a huge part of my own healing. Just getting to see the most extreme forms of disordered eating and eating disorders and how much that took life away from people. And getting to see how absurd it was that we were devoting our lives to that. 
And there had also been a number of experiences throughout my medical training where I was seeing how rampant fat phobia was and how damaging it was to people and how shame and guilt were very poor motivators for engaging in behaviors that enhance health and that enhance life. And so somewhere around that, it hit me that this was no way to continue living or eating. And I found my way back to intuitive eating, which again, I think I was incredibly privileged in that the way I was brought up for my first years, that was what guided my eating. It wasn't external rules. It wasn't. And I was also very privileged in that in the Mexican culture, at least when I was growing up, we still had this way of eating that was pretty much resembling the slow food movement. So people would make homemade meals from scratch and we would all sit at the table to enjoy meals. And as stressful as my family meals were, there still was that component of my mom having made the foods or the person who helped at home with the cooking having made those meals and just having a very close connection to just food. Yeah. And the love that went into it too, it sounds The love that went into it too, and also eating with our hands. Right, because I've heard people say also in Mexican cuisine, the tortilla is kind of like a scoop or a spoon. Like you, yeah. Yeah, and And we dunk our bread and yes, everything is very tactile. And from from a very young age, I really enjoyed the tactile sensation of preparing meals. I was in love with the kitchen from the time I was very little. And so just touching food, I think, gives you a different way of relating to it. Completely. Whereas when you use cutlery, there's this distance and yeah. this disconnect. And and with that sort of healthist approach to food too, it also creates that disconnect because it's like, you know, component A over here, component B exactly. over here, component C. And then you're you're using cutlery to like eat each of these things individually as opposed to it being sort of a mixed dish or something, you know, that, yeah, that you can eat with your hands and that you can mix things together and enjoy the flavors combining. Yeah. Which now that you mentioned that, for the longest time in my life, I could not have foods touch each other. Interesting. (laughs) I needed to have my salad in one plate and I needed to have my rice separate from the meat or the chicken or the fish, and then my vegetables not touching that. And if there was any sauce, the sauce couldn't touch anything else but the casserole mm. it was meant for, which again has to do with this sensory difference. Yeah. That is the case for many people. Did that ever go away or do you still have that to some extent? Uh, I still have it to some extent, although I've actively worked on it. And I would say it depends on the food, really. But mostly I'm all about sharing a meal and just ordering different things and sharing it with other people Mm -hmm. and mixing everything on the plate. The one thing that I can't have is sweet stuff combining with savory savory stuff. Oh, it's interesting. (laughs) If it's a sweet and sour sauce, for instance, that's fine. But Mm -hmm. I, I cannot use the same plate. Right, if it's like a buffet where you put your dessert on the same plate with your dinner or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I could never do that. that. That's and interesting. I still pretty much need the salad to be in a different plate too because the salad dressing can't mix with the other flavors in the food. Interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking about my family's 
style of serving food now. And there were a lot of separate bowls. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering, there's someone in my family who I think might have sensory issues like that, that sort of dictated, I don't want to like tell their story, but that their preferences dictated a lot of what we ate. And I'm wondering if that was part of it. It might have been. Not having the things mix. Huh. And the other thing that happened, I think, was when I was a child, because there was so much respect for my taste preferences and my food preferences, I almost never had any dairy, for instance, because I didn't like it. I had a preference for not eating that. And then when I was socialized more as a teenager and a young adult, especially starting to be in relationships with Mm. other people and going to their houses, dairy is a big part of Mexican cuisine and a big part of Italian food and a big part of so many cuisines. And so I started forcing myself to eat different types of cheese because it was expected socially that I would. And... I started having all sorts of things come up for me, sleep issues, digestive issues. And a few years ago, a friend of mine who does some naturopathic medicine said, you know what, I think this has to do with dairy. Try not eating as much dairy and then see how you feel. And I find it so interesting that my body really doesn't do well with dairy. And that was a very predominant preference in me as a child. And then there was this pressure socially to include that specific food in my diet. And then that just did not best support my health. And so now because of the work that I do and because of the conversations I have with colleagues and the people I support with their relationship with food, it's really interesting for me to see how much there is pressure to either not eat many things or to eat many things, as opposed to simply respecting what everybody needs at particular times. Yeah, because at this point in history, there's very much a pressure to not eat certain things. And yeah, it's like, we don't do gluten or we don't <sighs> do, the, you know, the, yeah. the gluten and dairy stigma is very real. Yeah. But then there's this, this other thing of, yeah, like what, what sort of sensory issues does someone have around it or what what are their preferences and that can get so muddy in diet culture. It can get really muddy in diet culture and also because in the anti-diet movement we're trying to move away from that but if we simply go to the other extreme then there can be not a lot of space for people who do need to make certain choices around food to make them freely without thinking that they're colluding with diet culture. And I think it can take a while. I mean I think it's interesting that for you, it came pretty recently. It's it's like been a long trajectory to getting to that point. Yeah. I'm curious to hear sort of how you got to the place where you could make a choice like that and have it not feel like going back to the chronic dieting days, you know? Yeah. So again, I was very lucky in that my dieting cycles were never too extreme. And when I started working with people with eating disorders, I slowly started to come to a more intuitive way of eating without even calling it intuitive eating until later. And then, of course, I learned about intuitive eating with capital I and capital E. And I had had a meditation practice since I was a teenager. And I started practicing yoga fairly early too. So by the time I got into medical school, I was already doing yoga and meditation. And 
throughout the process of healing my relationship with food and helping others heal their relationship with food, which is part of the same thing, really. Oh, yeah, for sure. I started really looking into the ways in which the yoga tradition and the mindfulness tradition could really help do that and contribute to that. And so I started doing training in mindful eating. And I found it incredibly fascinating that when I really started immersing myself in the practice of mindful eating, it was really going back to eating the way I ate as a child. So really honoring my sensory preferences, really honoring what foods really were more appetizing to me and the amounts that felt better for me. I come from a family where people, for the most part, eat large amounts of food. And I always, my sister and my mom and I always laugh so much because I can't understand how they can fit so much food into their stomachs. (laughs) (laughs) And then my sister can't understand how I can be full with a very little amount of food, but I need to eat frequently throughout the day. So it's interesting making space for that in terms of not trying to define what is normal, but just saying my body needs this and your body needs something different. And I started going back to eating with my hands, which I very much enjoy. And just really going back to that very close connection with food and really starting to experiment with different choices in terms of what feels better for my body and what doesn't feel so good for my body. And I think that bringing it back to a very basic sensory level took a lot of the mental charge of whether it was right or wrong to eat a specific food or a specific combination of foods. And that opened up space for me to make certain choices around eating. For instance, I have chosen to not have a caffeine intake anymore. And I've pretty much remained caffeine-free for about eight years, which I find really interesting that it doesn't feel restrictive at all. Whereas in another time in my life, it would have felt super restrictive because I seriously enjoy the taste of coffee. And I, I love chai with black tea. It's one of my favorite things. But it's come to a place where I can really enjoy the aroma of somebody else preparing it or drinking it. And for me, I know that my mood is more stable in the long term if I don't drink coffee or if I don't drink alcohol. And socially, not drinking alcohol is a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not that I don't drink any alcohol at all. I drink, I have a drink occasionally, but I know that if I drink alcohol consistently, my mood disorder does not do as well. And I really value having a more stable mood and I really value having a better quality of sleep. And that is more kind and more compassionate to my body. And the one question that has been really meaningful for me is just asking myself, what is the more compassionate choice right now for me and for my body? It is not about somebody else's idea of health or even my idea of health, which can be pretty warped often, of course, to be yeah. honest. It's just about what is kindest right now. And it doesn't mean that I make the right quote-unquote choice every single time. I make mistakes, but that's simply some more information for my next choice. And it's a process. And so taking off the weight of the perfect choice has been super healing for me. Just knowing that I'm going to make mistakes every single day, but that I get another chance the next meal. Right. 
That's a huge, a huge thing that I see with a lot of people that, you know, trying to coach through intuitive eating. They get to this point of, okay, I get it. Like I get how it feels when I eat, when I'm hungry or like moderately, you know, the sort of subtle levels of hunger rather than waiting till I'm ravenous. And I like the feeling of nourishing myself more consistently, but sometimes I still mess up and end up waiting until I'm ravenous and then overeating and feel, you know, overeating, quote unquote, and feeling really, really bad and uncomfortable. And they beat themselves up about this process. But it's like, again and again, I just have to be like, no, it's a practice. This is a practice. You're not going to be perfect at it. Even intuitive eaters who've been doing it their entire lives are not perfect at it. You know, sometimes it's like, whoops, I got really waylaid and forgot to pack a snack. And then suddenly I'm ravenous. And now I'm like Thanksgiving full or whatever. And that's okay too, you know? Yeah. And and I think that it's, it's so layered Mm -hmm. in that it's not just food. It's our history of trauma. And food for many of us has become a way to soothe ourselves because, again, our body is wise. Eating activates the relaxation response. It's a natural way to do it. And so if we feel triggered or if we have complex PTSD, it's going to show up over and over again. And I, I very clearly remember Amy Pershing speaking at the last Vita conference and saying, with trauma, some things you heal, others you manage. And sometimes eating in a way that probably doesn't best support my needs in the global sense at that minute, but that is the only way I know of soothing myself when I feel triggered. It's it's the best way I know right then, and then I will come back to my practice again and again and again. And the other component that I feel I'm still healing because of the culture that we live in, is even at a time where I had stopped dieting, I was still very afraid of what that meant in terms of my body changing and my weight changing. And for a while, it wasn't really that diet cycling, but I was still trying to control my food or control my food choices. Right, those very subtle levels of diet culture sneaking in. Yeah, and I think that the body trust practice that I've been learning and practicing has been really significant in just externalizing that and knowing that my body is not the problem, culture is the problem, and these oppressive structures and discourses are the problem. And so choosing to nourish myself is an act of resistance. And that brings up the rebel in me and gives it room to play. I love that. Which makes me really enjoy the process and be willing and able to come back to it again. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the trauma piece, too. I I think I see this a lot in my clients, and I've experienced this myself, where the chronic dieting and weight stigma we experience in our society and just the onslaught of diet culture is itself a form of trauma. You of know, course. It's, it's disconnecting us from our bodies. It's making us feel like there's something wrong with us and, mm-hmm. you know, really triggers a lot of the same trauma responses as any form of stigma, shaming, prejudice, and, and that sort of thing. So I think there's there's something in terms of the healing of our relationship with food that also has to parallel the healing of those deeper traumas. And 
intuitive eating and mindful eating sort of become a much more global thing than just about your relationship with food, right? It's about about the whole person. It's about the whole person. And I think that that this trauma piece is really a necessary thing to address in the way that you're talking about it, in the way that diet culture is trauma in and of itself, because it threatens our most basic need, which is the basic need to belong. Yes. And if non-conforming bodies are precluded from full participation and full belonging and full connection, then that will perpetuate this trauma of disconnection and of trying to conform and perform the way we are told that health looks or gender looks or a pretty or good size looks or a level of ability or a level of mental health and way of processing and thinking about things or even the way we process emotions. And so if we don't make room for all of that and build a more inclusive society, every single day we're threatening people's need to belong. Mm. And if we do that, then of course, those of us who feel like we don't belong in any sphere will try to conform and do the things required to conform, which is why it then makes sense that people are dieting or that people are restricting or that people are trying to modify their bodies in different ways because that's what they feel is the price to belong or that's what we feel is the price to belong. Yeah, that's so well said. It's because it, it is this societal expectation of thinness or performing gender a particular way or, you know, the, the mythic norm that Audre Lorde talks about where it's like, Basically, the mythic norm is a white, straight, cisgender man, you know, and the further you are away from that, the more you are sort of compelled and pushed to try to accede to that by softening whatever femininity you have, by conforming to European beauty standards, by, you know, all these different ways that people can try to sort of push themselves and mold themselves into that mythic norm, which is promised to us as the like secret key to access and really is in a lot of ways, you know, the secret key to access it's, it's privilege. So it gives you access to more in society, but also like this myth that you can't be loved or accepted or belong without that is, is the really traumatizing toxic thing, I think. Absolutely. And then because bodies are bodies and bodies are diverse, they won't conform. No. And so we do our utmost best to conform in terms of behaviors and what is considered good behavior. And so if you have a non-conforming body, good behavior is investing all of your energy in trying to get there or investing all of your energy in trying to control the way you eat, conforming to healthist standards or to whatever is the new fad in your social group. And then you invest all of your life energy in that But it makes sense, again, because you're trying to belong, which is why I think it's so amazing that communities like the one around you are growing because then you have a true sense of belonging. You're in your authenticity, in your vulnerability, expressing all that you are and being accepted and saying, you know what? A way of belonging is also choosing to resist and opt out of this thing that is so constricting. And so in Niva Peran's words, so corseting. Mm, yes. 
I was just, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about earlier, because we're recording this at the ASDA conference, and we're in real space with real people, with people that we know from, you know, mostly online. I mean, like you and I met in person the first time, but most of these folks we connect with online first. And there's something so wonderful about being sort of embodied and in this embodied space with people. And one thing I was noticing was it was really hot in one of the rooms in the the last presentation that we were in. And I was sweating and Uh like, I was, you know, I realized that one sort of layer of body acceptance that doesn't still come totally easily or naturally to me is sweating feels like, oh, I need to hide this. This is gross. (laughs) This is bad, you know? But then I'm like, hugging people afterwards and talking to people and they're like mopping their brow and like fanning themselves (laughs) and everybody's like, oh, it's so hot. I'm sweating so much. And we're just like giving sweaty hugs and nobody cares, you know? And it was, I was just like, this is beautiful. This is sort of an example of one small way in which this community just sort of fosters a deeper level of body acceptance and how, how beautiful and healing and nourishing it is to be able to experience that and be able to be like, oh, right, it's human to sweat when you're hot and it's okay and we're all in this together, you know? Yeah, and and I think that a positive experience of embodiment is the ultimate form of belonging. Yeah. Mm. I'm also thinking about when we first met at the Be Nourished retreat, how it was such a weird weekend because it was, it was. or it, w- it wasn't even a weekend. It was like a Monday through Wednesday or something and, and we were there during the election. Yes, and being so like emotionally distraught mm-hmm. and feeling so terrible, but then being in a community with people who were also so distraught and we could just cry together mm-hmm. and be together and whatever sort of responses we were all having was also so healing. And, and so just like you said, you know, this experience of embodiment and being accepted in your embodiment with other people. Yeah. So um, I want to share this experience that I had yesterday. For the past few years, I have been dealing with a chronic injury and chronic pain in my lower back. And so my mobility is limited to some degree, to a varying degree, depending on the day. And the things that I can do or not do or the ways that I can move my body are different from what I was used to. And yesterday... I switched from an Airbnb to a guest house downtown closer to the Asda conference. And when I checked in, there was nobody at the guest house. And I had some of my amazing body trust friends with me. And two of them lifted my super heavy suitcase through two flights of really steep stairs. And my heart flooded with just gratitude and love. But I was also feeling so much shame that I couldn't do it and that I didn't plan better and that these people had to carry my suitcase for me. And I know that it, that they did it from love and still I was so ashamed. And I thought, yeah, I, I don't want to tell them that I'm ashamed because then they're going to have to take care of my shame in addition to having <laughs> lifted my suitcase. <laughs> and I was so in, in my head. And so I reached out to another of my friends and I said, hey, this happened and I'm having a shame attack and I just needed to speak it and just say it to somebody who will get it. And I was so moved by her reply. She just said, if I were in your situation, I probably would have reacted the same way. I'm sure they were super happy to help you with your suitcase. And 
we love you and we wouldn't have you as any other than you are. And it is such a gift to be in community that way. Because otherwise, if we're isolated, I don't know how many therapy sessions it would have taken me to process that and to get over that shame coming from a history where I had to do everything myself and take care of it, take care of everything on my own and not really ask for help or reach out. And so being in community this way is so healing so that doing this work isolatedly doesn't really hack it. No, I no, I totally feel you on that. And I think doing this work also, of course, brings up sort of shame and feelings of, you know, fraudy feelings as the the being boss people would say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I remember, I mean, like you said, for me, one of the last steps in my own healing from my relationship with food and my body was starting to do this work. And at first, I think this is also a testament to sort of the divides in the eating disorder community as well, because I think there's a segment of the eating disorder treatment community in particular that is very sort of traditional and by the Mm -hmm. book. And if you don't have a certain amount of experience, you're like, what are you even doing speaking out? And coming from a really eclectic background like I have with lots of experience as a journalist, but then kind of starting over as a dietitian and then kind of starting over again in a new field as a dietitian, I was just like, full of so much shame, you know? Yeah. And there were certain contexts that really exacerbated it. And Mm -hmm. I think I felt very isolated and alone when I first started doing eating disorder treatment work. And I think finding this community of health at every size folks and body trust and intuitive eating and, you know, this much more like touchy-feely sort of way of approaching it has been the kind of community that I needed to release that shame and to feel like, okay, I belong here and I'm allowed to do this work and I'm allowed to be who I am and whatever my story is, whatever I'm bringing to the table in my work with clients or in my work on the podcast or my writing or whatever it is, is okay and is enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, I mean, this kind of gets into the whole like white supremacy issue really. And white supremacy is like a scary phrase for anyone listening that might raise some alarm bells. But really what it is, is, the mythic norm, that idea of like the the white, straight, cisgender man being kind of the one that we all aspire to be like. And our society really is geared in a lot of ways towards that, to where being quote-unquote professional is sort of falling into these white, cisgender, European, male kinds of standards of behavior that really don't work for, I mean, they don't even necessarily work for a white cisgender straight man, you know, like they would work for maybe a robotic version. Yes. Like the Stepford Wives or something. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what, I mean, going back to what you were saying before about medical school too, it's like this kind of system that we're in wants us to be like machines, you know, it wants us not to have needs. It wants us not to have emotions. It wants us to just shut down our humanity and just do work, you know, and just be cogs in the machine. Yeah. And as I was hearing you talk, I I was thinking back at this, this luggage thing and thinking that every single one of us comes with baggage. Yes. And there's this message that you need to take care of your baggage on your own. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you're a mess and you don't have it together and you're unworthy. 
Right. Like don't be in a relationship until you've dealt with your baggage. Don't be a provider until you are completely healed, whatever that is. Right. Because nobody can be completely whatever. It's not a destination you get to and then you're all fixed. Right. And sometimes we really just need help carrying our baggage. And there are people in community who are willing to do that for us and, and with us. And so shout out to Kim and Nicole and Dana <laughs> to thank them for yesterday and for all the days that we're together and support each other. And I think it's really interesting that so many of us who are attracted to doing healing work have our own trauma, you know, yeah. I mean, kind of to be a human is to go through trauma really. But I think especially people with like complex trauma and PTSD and stuff like that. I mean, like raising my hand over here, like we're conditioned to have to caretake other people from a young age. That's part of the experience of being in families where there's trauma, right? So like we have those skills. We have the skills to be able to do it on our own and to be able to help other people and sort of like hold it together and seem like we're really, you know, strong and not really taking care of ourselves on the inside, but also not visibly falling apart so other people feel like they can depend on us. Yeah. And I think it would be easy to go through a career as a helping professional like that. And so many people do, and I see them get burned out, you know, and be sort of empty on the inside, but continue going through those motions. But I think there's something so powerful in finding a community where we talk about that stuff and we are able to name that and say, how about you don't have to do that here? Like, how about trying something else on for size? You know, that it's not... You don't have to do the thing that your trauma taught you you had to do to be okay. You can, what would it be like to let go of that coping mechanism and just be instead of always caretaking or helping? Yes. And to to be able to be in a space where you can say without shame, I'm overwhelmed or I just am confused right now in talking about people who have sensory processing challenges or who have or who are not neurotypical you know or I don't very much love some of the language that's coming around people who process things differently so I will use neurodiverse which is the most neutral and descriptive for me so for neurodiverse folks there's also the need to really talk openly about it because it's not visible And specifically for people who are very skilled at conforming to survive and to avoid bullying and rejection, sometimes it compounds what what you were just saying. So to give the appearance that you have everything together and you're doing fine and you're not overwhelmed and you've dealt with everything you need to deal with, you don't need help with anything. And to just say, hey, I'm, I'm not really getting what's going on right now or I feel super overwhelmed, or I need to not be around people right now, and have that held is just super important. And when you've been on the receiving side of that, you can also pay it forward and replicate it for other people. Yeah, because it feels so good to have that held for you, that space held for you. So you sort of can embody it for other people. Exactly. And that's That's the embodiment piece that shows up in the relationships we have every single day. Whereas the other thing where you're faking it, you might be able to trick some people, but that embodied piece is not there. 
And so there's that bit of connection lacking. Yeah, that's so important. And I think that is, for a long time in my life, I felt that there was that connection lacking in so many of my relationships, you know? And I think that's a common thing of feeling kind of empty, right? When you when you feel like you have to perform and have it all together on the outside, there's no one who really knows what is actually going on and the ways in which you actually need help or support or just nurturance. And, and it's like you're always pushing down that need for yourself and you might not even recognize it for yourself either. Right. And then that perpetuates the mythical norm. Yes. Because if the mythical norm in the health professions is a provider who has everything together, who is not struggling anymore because they've fixed all of their issues, then what message is that sending to the people who are wanting to help? If they look at us as the mythical norm and they think, I will never get there because my process is messy and every day I'm struggling and every day there are challenges and this is super difficult, but the message we're sending is this is all love and light. No, it's it's uh, not going to connect. No, it's not going to connect. And we're simply going to perpetuate the idea that you're flawed, you're defective, you're broken. Whereas if we dare to be vulnerable and say, hey, I don't have it all together either. I'm still working on this. I might be further along the path just because I've been doing these longer. Right. Or had more privilege too, you know. Or had more privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Or both. Yeah. You know, I in my conversation with Maria Paredes for the podcast, we talked about this notion of recovered, right? And, and the uh, word recovered. Yeah. And I had never, I mean, I had I had thought about it in terms of, you know, the recovery really isn't linear and that my recovery is still ongoing in the sense of always deepening and understanding more about myself and and sort of releasing more and more shame on various planes, various levels, not just related to food and body, but just, you know, the thing I mentioned earlier about sweating. It's like, oh, that's a new level of body acceptance I didn't really, wasn't really aware of. But I hadn't, you know, she put it really well in terms of saying that recovered, being able to identify as recovered is a huge privilege because it usually takes a lot of therapy to get there, which is expensive. It takes maybe people in your life, you know, supporting you. And I I certainly know quite a few people where therapy is stigmatized in their culture and their family. And so they haven't had access to it. Even if they have financially had access, they couldn't access it just because it wasn't allowed, you know, and they have to sort of unearth that stigma. And so there's really a huge amount of privilege in being able to be kind of like past the immediate and intense food and body stuff being past being active in an eating disorder. But then there's also this this piece, like you said, of do we even want to put it in such black and white terms that like, oh, I'm past that. I think the, you know, like Carolyn Costin, who first came up with the, the idea of recovered, I think there was something really important and healing about this idea that it doesn't have to be so bad all the time, you know, that like when you're in the depths of an eating disorder and things seem like they're never going to get better, there is hope that it can get better and you don't actually have to use these disordered behaviors to cope. You can cope in a different way. Or not all the time. Right, right, exactly. And yeah, that you can get to a point where those behaviors are not your go-to. But I think it, it does sort of turn things black and white when you say like recovered versus recovering. Yeah. And so there has to be this 
more nuanced to the way we talk about these things. Absolutely. And I don't think that there can ever be true recovery from diet culture mm-hmm. as long as the system is invaded with diet culture. Because then we're saying, oh, you're the one with a problem. Like the person is the one with a problem. How do you not have any part of your day or your thinking trapped in diet culture when that's the water you're swimming in? Totally. How do you not take in some of that water? And then, yeah, I think even the way that we talk about recovery is so individualized in part because the project of societal recovery is so huge. You know, it's hard to be like, (laughs) just, you'll be like, it'll be all fine when society's different because it's like, well, when's that going to happen? So we need to give people. And there will be something else if if, there's not diet culture. Of course, yeah. It's just going to morph and shape shift into some new version of really white supremacy and, you know, like this, this sort of mythic norm of how we're all quote unquote supposed to be. So we have to give people individual tools and ways of coping with and fighting back against diet culture. But I think it sort of almost gets translated as it's your responsibility to do this. And in fact, it's not your responsibility. If you want to feel better and more alive and less hindered by diet culture, here are some practices and tools that might help you. Yeah, that they might, might help not you always work. <laughs> out or resist. Right. Yesterday we were at the Body Trust Symposium and there's this new image of the faces of body trust, which I love because it's this tree and it begins with a seed and a sapling. And then if the roots are not deep enough yet, an attack of diet culture will come and then it'll topple you. But then the more you practice, the more you return to the practice again and again and again, and the more you cultivate the different branches of the tree, at the same time, the roots will deepen and the roots deepen in community too. And so if you're stronger because you are surrounded by other trees that are building a forest, then diet culture will come and it won't topple you. It will definitely blow your leaves and it will move your branches and it might throw you off balance for a sec, but then you're stronger in community. And at the same time, there's nothing wrong with you for being affected. In my process right now, I would say I definitely have really difficult body days in terms of internalized ableism, mostly, and also in terms of internalized weight stigma. It never gets to the point at this time in my life where that triggers dieting behavior anymore. It doesn't mean I don't struggle. It doesn't mean my mood is not affected. It's just at this time, and because I'm enormously privileged in many ways, dieting behavior is not my solution of choice. Right. I feel you on that. I I think it's the same for me too. Like There's definitely days where... I'm not happy with my body and I feel the internalized weight stigma pop up, you know, like seeing pictures of myself, seeing my wedding photos was one moment where I was like, Mm. oh, here's this again. Didn't think this was going to come. You know, it was such a beautiful day. I was really excited to see the pictures. Like there was no part of me that was like dreading it. And then I saw them and I was like, oh, wow. Whoa, interesting. Diet culture rears its head when I'm looking at these pictures and what does that mean? And but yeah, you know, it, it did not trigger dieting behavior in the way that it would have. And it brought about a new level of kind of like, okay, I have to dance with this. I have to talk back to this. I have to question this. And how much does it suck that that 
happened with these photos of a day that was so special to me and that was right that felt so wonderful in the moment and what I wanted to do was look back and remember those moments and not judge the body that is showing up in the pictures for not conforming to some bullshit you know like yeah but it creeps in and it's thank you for sharing that I'm I'm really moved by the fact that it's it's a symbol of a celebration of love and of the body that's the vehicle for you to experience that love and it still creeps in yeah and that's I think the dance that we all have to do in diet culture and very much harder to do that when you're in a more stigmatized body like the more stigma absolutely your body experiences in the culture the the harder it is going to be to respond to those things of course because if you're bombarded by messages of your body is wrong your body doesn't belong your body doesn't conform to what we think is worthy or lovable or acceptable how can you not be traumatized by that yeah it's kind of like the tree metaphor i was thinking about you know what you're saying about being blown around but not toppling and stuff but it's like if you're facing weight stigma every day because you're in a larger body or in a stigmatized you know body that's stigmatized in our culture in some way like your roots have to be so damn deep and basically it's like you're in a hurricane you yeah. know instead of just sort of normal wind it's like gale force wind all the time so of course it's going to be harder and of course it's going to be even harder if you're standing alone if you're not yet part of a community that you feel a part of and where you feel embraced and accepted just as you are. I know. And it's, I love the idea of community. I love the experience of community. I hate that, you know, for a lot of people listening, probably this podcast is the only form of that kind of community, you know, that, that is in their lives right now. Yeah. There are on online communities. There are, are sort of growing networks across the country and the world of this this new way and this really it's not new it goes back to you know I mean it's it's our birthright but I think we there has to be so much more done to create inroads and community you know create communities around that support people in respecting and accepting their bodies absolutely and it comes back to this thing you were sharing earlier about being embodied and being in live connection to other people and for me at least, and I think it has a lot to do with my culture, the physicality of it is really important. Touching other people. For me, it's one of the more basic types of hunger. It's like the tactile yeah. tactile thing. Yeah. I know, same. I have a real need for physical touch. I think that's like my love language, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I always want to cuddle. And my husband's much more of a uh, like acts of service love language. So he'll like make me lunch and then yeah. like, thank you. Can I have a hug? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so having those kinds of communities in person, I think is so important. And for all that online, I mean, it's amazing how the online world has connected us and allows us, you know, whereas like, 20 years ago, if we had met at a retreat and, you know, stayed in touch by letter. Yes, snail mail. It would have been, yeah, like much more sort of once in a while and probably not groups of people all together being able to connect and respond and riff on each other. And so it's incredible that we can all create these connections, maybe in person or maybe online, and then cultivate them online and keep in touch with people. But there is really missing, I think, especially in the online support communities around, 
you know, intuitive eating, like teaching people how to get back in touch with their skills around self-care with food and body. Absolutely. There needs to be more in-person spaces. and Yeah, I agree with you. And I think there's both at the same time in terms of I am super happy and grateful that the space you have created exists for people to connect around body positivity and body acceptance and body trust and just a more nourishing relationship with food and with body. And at the same time, I agree, there is such a need for more connection and for live communities who can meet in person, not just online. And so that you know that there are people who are experiencing the same struggles as you near you and you can connect with them. And because I live in a country with a different language, many of the things that are existing right now are in English. And there's such a need for Spanish resources and Spanish-speaking communities. And the language is a big part of it and also the cultural aspects. Every single culture has a different history and way of relating with food and with body and a different experience of embodiment. And it's really difficult to translate things across cultures and across different social groups. And so I think it's really important that we continue to grow a community globally with local pockets, so to speak, of people who can connect really more closely and more physically yeah. in space. Yeah, we need both. And I mean, that's a great segue actually into, because we're, we're sort of needing to wind down. I want to be conscious of your time and our body's needs as well. Yeah. But you have done an amazing thing of helping me translate my Master Your Anti-Diet Message program yeah. into Spanish. And I think that's one sort of way in which people can, like people in Spanish-speaking countries can start to be aware that this is a thing, that this, you know, yes. that they can do this kind of work and get connected maybe locally with other providers who are doing the same sort of work. Yes, absolutely. And so tell us a little bit about that and also all of your other amazing work and where people can find you. Oh, thank you. Well, I think it's one of my missions to be a bridge in this world in many ways. I have a peculiar professional background, <laughs> I will say. And I also have the enormous privilege of being really fluent in two languages. And so to be able to translate concepts that are often not easily translatable. And so to really bring this world of size acceptance and in the broader sense of body liberation to my language, to Spanish. And so that's part of the work that I do, really bridging the English-speaking world with the Spanish-speaking world and making more resources available for the general public and for providers. And in terms of my practice, I have an in-person medical and mental health practice in Mexico City. And I also have a coaching practice online for anybody in the world who speaks either Spanish or English and wants to do this work with me. And my coaching practice is called Fiercely Embodied, and it's fiercelyembodied.com. And then for my medical and mental health practice, my bilingual page is available at liliagrawemd.com. And then I also lead a project called Mindful Eating Mexico, where we 
spread the word about the practice of mindfulness and compassion and mindful eating and how that can help us heal our relationship with ourselves, with food, with our bodies in a way that is definitely weight inclusive because mindful eating, as we know, has been heavily co-opted by the diet culture. Yes. And so I think it's important to continue teaching it and honoring its ethics in it being body inclusive in every way. Yeah, not just as another form of diet culture, the wellness diet. Not as an oppressive practice because mindfulness is at its essence a liberation practice. And so when it's co-opted by an oppressive structure and discourse, then what is it? Right. Yeah, that it's just twisting it into something that it's not meant to be. Yeah. And yeah, there's no reason to bludgeon yourself with like you must eat mindfully you should do this you should do right yeah it's a tool and one of the things that I'm very passionate about is teaching health providers and helping health providers navigate the challenges of transitioning to a more body inclusive practice whether it be in terms of gender or weight or size or all the different ways that bodies manifest themselves in their beautiful diversity And also just helping people who want to heal their relationship with their bodies. I think they're they're both such important pieces of work. And I very much identify with you in that wanting to do both because I think it's like we were saying about the societal and the individual, you know, the societal changes are going to happen with more and more healthcare providers and sort of people who are able to reach lots of people on their own learning about this work and doing this work. And then the individuals also need the tools and the practices to help them navigate this world in the meantime, while it's still so steeped in diet culture. Yeah. And I think that as providers, we have this responsibility to be advocates because we are so privileged. Mm -hmm. Our voices carry more authority in society. And so I think we need to use our voices. Yeah. So different than the old school therapy model of like, you're a blank slate. You don't. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have to be activists. Yes. Uh. Yeah. We have to be activists and we have to show up as full human beings Mm -hmm. with an embodied presence and vulnerability and just engage with people loving them. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good note to end on. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Lilia Graua for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some help to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. And then to get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 166. That's christyharrison.com slash 166. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing, rating, and reviewing Food Psych on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe yourself so that you never miss an episode. Just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, become an intuitive eater, and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course.
A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my team at Food Psych Programs, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who